So this morning, I would like to introduce my friend, Dave Nixon, to come on up. And uh, Dave was here about a year ago. If you were here, you know Dave. And Dave is not only my friend, he's my spiritual director. And so what that means is we talk about once a month, whether on FaceTime or if he's in town in person. And uh, Dave just kind of directs me, tells me, okay, this is how you need to live your life. Uh, (laughs) No, he is... uh, I can't even explain to you what the experience is like because what a true spiritual director is is actually allowing the Holy Spirit to be the director. He's just a presence uh, helping the process of the work of the Spirit uh, in my own life. And he's a true friend and brother, and I couldn't be more grateful for him. And uh, I want to remind you that this afternoon he's leading a little mini retreat over in the student center from 2 to 5. And if you haven't signed up for that, don't worry, just come. Uh, you can come, and if you can't stay for the whole time, that's fine too. So 2 o'clock over in the student center, Dave will be with us. Dave is a former vineyard pastor, uh, still part of the vineyard uh, tradition, and now teaches schools of spiritual direction. He trains other people to be spiritual directors. So Dave, thanks for being here. Yeah, uh, can I pray for you before you? Yes. Afterwards, can I use that instead? Are they okay with that? Would you be okay, John, if he uses this mic rather than the lapel? Or do you tape something? Okay. Okay. All right. Thanks. God, thank you for Dave. Uh, As he speaks this morning, God, I pray that your spirit would speak through him, that you would open our hearts to all that you intend for us to hear and, and be formed and shaped into the image of Christ. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I was just concerned that if I turned my head that that that's what would happen with the lapel because I'm a head turner. (laughs) Uh, I am honored to be here with you today and uh, I want to uh, share a little bit about uh, the kinds of conversations that we have with one another as as human beings and as uh, followers of Jesus and um, this whole thing about um, veiling that that happens in our conversations. As I was praying about this, this is the passage that uh, popped up in my mind, and I began reflecting on it. It's from Luke chapter 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, so the big kahuna, and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he couldn't see over the crowd, so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up, and he saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. And then we have presumably a break and we pick up later in the story after Jesus has had time with Zacchaeus. 
And Zacchaeus stands up and he says to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. It's, it's a transformational moment in the life of this, uh, of this man who was strangely, although vilified by his own people, uh, the object of scorn, derision, um, was attracted to this rabbi. And this is the thing that I th- think I regularly undervalue is how much people who were irreligious loved to be around Jesus, were, were drawn to him. Um, he was the antithesis of the rabbis of his day who created some sort of a, a, a wall between themselves and these uh, tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. These seem to be the three sort of categories that are thrown up in Scripture, people who are sexually immoral and people who are uh, turncoats. They're sided with the Roman Empire, and now they, um, you know, they're extortioners. They, they rob from their own people to give to Rome, and they live off of the excess of that. And then this whole other class of people that are regarded as sinners. Now, when you think of sinner, you think of, oh, an an evil person, oh, sinner. But when the the New Testament writers speak of sinners, they mean it very differently. They mean those people who just were not observant about keeping the law of Moses. They didn't really practice the provisions of the law, the instructions of the law. So they were... They were just, uh, the Pharisees would say, you're, you're kind of lazy spiritually and you don't care. Um, they would certainly not be considered, uh, you know, agnostics. They would not be considered atheists, but they're just people who don't give a rip anymore about following the law of Moses. So you have these classes of people. And interestingly, all class, all these three classes, they they are strangely attracted to this rabbi and they want to spend time with him. Um, and we know in our own culture that, that when people, uh, that religious figures um, are not people that the general public really wants to spend time with. And the great concern is if, I, if I'm before this person or with this person in some way, there's going to be a judgment that comes upon me. There will be conclusions made about me. The person is waiting for the opportunity to evangelize me, to tell me I'm wrong and to set me straight and to extract the confession of faith from me. That always there's this sort of motive in the back of their mind uh, that they simply can't be with me the way that Jesus was with others, accepting them as they were, completely as they were. And this is a, this is a challenge that uh, I, I think we, we, we all face. And as I think about what is the thing that separates us from people, that inner disposition, it's really, uh, at the end of the day, it's often a pride. Is that I have the goods and you don't. I know what's right and you don't. And uh, if you would just give me the opportunity to set you straight or to tell you, then you'll see the rightness of my position and you will come my way. 
but you don't care about that. You don't want that. And so there's this uh, inner pride that we have, and it infiltrates most of our conversations with people. And it manifests itself in different forms as we are with people. Jesus seems to hold none of this. He's with this woman who is caught in the act of adultery, and he's in this uh, place where it's, it's one of the most tense situations in all of Scripture. As I think of tense moments in the New Testament, in the life of Jesus, I can think of two that feel ultra-tense. This one, and uh, when uh, he is sort of uh, captured, so to speak, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives, and there are guards all around him. But this is a, this is a dynamic situation in which Jesus exhibits a perfect calm, a perfect presence, where he stoops and he writes, and he doesn't get caught up in the anxiety of the moment, and then he emerges from this place of silence and prayer, and he says the thing that needs to be said. Everybody disperses, and he looks at the woman, and he says, where are your accusers? And she says, Lord, I have none. And he says, neither do I accuse you. And he doesn't launch into some, you know, uh, litany of things that she needs to be doing. He doesn't follow her and set up a system for her. There's just, he just says, I don't accuse you either. I just go and sin no more. And that's it. And he lets her go. So this is our Lord. It's, it's beautiful to behold. And um, he is about uh, bringing peace. He is about breaking down walls. And for me, one of the, the, the journey, uh, like a, a trajectory in life, a journey that I have been on, it feels like in an intense way over the last 15 years of my life, uh, is one in which I am trying to be with people like Jesus. That's it. Because I feel like if, if I can do that, uh, I've, I've done what uh, I need to do in this lifetime. And to put away all notions of what that might look like. And it has been a humbling experience for me, deeply humbling. And I want to tell, I want to tell you uh, two stories. These are short stories that exhibit a way of being with people that is transformative, all right? So <clears throat> I travel a lot with my work. Uh, I, I'm typically flying about 120, 50,000 miles a year. And so I'm on planes a lot, well over 100 planes a year. And I'm so, you know, you're just always sitting next to people. Those, those Delta ads, you know, because I'm a Delta dude, uh, where they... They, they show shots of people sitting in uh, these luxurious wide seats, you know, and nobody on either side of them. And if you look closely at the picture, there's nobody in front or behind them. That's a lie, okay? That doesn't exist in the world <laughs> that I fly in. Uh, I am always sort of sandwiched, it seems, you know, between people or somebody there. So I'm flying to Hartford, Connecticut last <clears throat> spring, and it wasn't too long after I was with you. I'm toward the back of the plane, and next to me, across the aisle, sits a gentleman. 
And I always, uh, not always, but most of the time, I, I just try and um, say hi, at least say hi. If somebody's there, sits next to me. And so I said, I said, good morning. Um, and just say a little thing like, you know, are you, are you heading off somewhere or are you coming home? And he said, well, I'm going off uh, to, a, to a party. I said, oh, what kind of a party is this? And he says, we're going to celebrate my mom's 90th birthday. And I said, oh, how wonderful. Um, and that was it. And then he returned, you know, the question and said, then what are you up to? What are you off to? And I said, well, I'm off to kind of business and pleasure. I said, because for me, they're, they're linked. Uh, I'm going to be with some people doing some training. And that's all I said. And he says, oh, what kind of training? And I said, well, uh, I'm going to be training them how to listen to other people in ways that really matter, uh, teaching them how to listen compassionately to other people. And, of course, oh, uh, so what, what is the, you know, tell, tell me more about this. And I began to tell him, the moment I said, I'm a pastor, he said, oh, he says, well, I'm a, I'm a mathematician and an atheist. That was it. And you felt in that moment, the wall go up. You're a pastor. I know your type. Right? But the moment I heard him say, I'm an atheist and a mathematician, I got excited. <laughs> and it wasn't because I thought, oh, now, now I'm going to figure out how to pounce on him or anything like that. I just got excited that here's this human being across from me who's so very different from me, and I wonder what his world is like. And so I, I, I said, uh, uh, oh, well, how wonderful. And I said, tell me about your work. And so I guess he was a little taken back, but he said he teaches uh, kids in the inner city of Chicago. He teaches them calculus, but he teaches them the stuff that comes before calculus. And I said, how did you get involved in that work? I said, that is so wonderful. Most people are trying to flee teaching, and here you are in it. Tell me about that. And he began to share with me something about his work. I find out he had just received Teacher of the Year Award for the state of Illinois. He'd been working with these kids for over 20 years, most of the kids that he teaches go on and get college scholarships in mathematics. Remarkable man. And I was just so fascinated and I wanted to know, you know, I'm just trying to unpack this dude in front of me and who, or, or next to me, who are you? And as I began to inquire how he got into this work and more about his life, we go on this journey and I find out that... Uh, when he was younger and starting, that he and his wife had a child who was born with a severe genetic illness. And uh, she lived to be three years old. And she was in and out of the hospital, in and out of the hospital. And he was telling me this story, and my heart was just being, you know, hit uh, through that. He, and he got to the end of it. 
I don't, he, he, was, he just didn't even know how he got there. <laughs> but, but he's sharing this story with me, and, and he gets to the end of it. And we just paused in quiet, just sat there for a moment. And I said to him, I said, Richard, what happened to you? What, I said, what an experience to lose, you know, to lose a child at that young, young age. You know, I said, what happened to you in that? And, we, and, and then I said, here's, here's what I'm trying to find out. Who have you become as a result of that? Who is the man sitting next to me right now? And how is he different from the man prior to that event in his life? I'd love to know what has become of you. He sat there for probably two minutes in quiet. We were doing what, what we were doing spiritual direction. He just didn't know it. <laughs> okay. He resurfaces and he shares two things that he became aware of because he took time to reflect upon his life with somebody who really wanted to hear about his life and with no agenda other than to say, who are you? And he said, I think I learned, I think I've become more grateful for community. He said, because really we were at that time in our lives, we were, we were supported by some very dear friends, a collection of friends. And then the next thing he said was, <clears throat> and, and I think I've become sensitized to suffering, to, to those who hurt. And interestingly, in the course of that conversation too, he began to talk about his brother who has appeared before Congress and, and lobbies uh, heavily in the U.S., uh, is trying to get drug companies to make um, uh, their drugs available in Africa to people who have AIDS, to make them affordable. And he has worked hard. And he talked about his brother being courageous. And he said, yeah, my, my brother's the one who's really courageous. And I just thought, well, how interesting. Here you have been in the trenches of inner city work for 20 plus years you've provided a bridge for kids who never would have had it and you call your brother courageous but I don't and, and I, I thought how interesting they said that and I said could, could we go back to something too after we talked for a while I said I noticed that you said this I said how do you see your own work because you t speak of his as being courageous but and he, he came around finally said you know I think I have lived a courageous life. So th these, these things that were coming out of this man, well, here's, here's what happened. We get up. He's going off to his thing. I'm going off to my thing. And as we're standing in the aisle, he says, that was an amazing conversation. He said, thank you. And then he paused and he said, you know, I think I am a spiritual man. 
And I didn't have to say then, well, would you like to uh, confess Jesus at this moment? (laughs) You know? Just, he said, he just said, that was an amazing conversation, thank you. And he said, I think I'm a spiritual man. And that's the kind of conversation I want to have with people again and again and again and again. And I'll tell you that 15 years ago, there's no way I could have had a conversation like that with somebody else. Because there was this thing that would arise between us, and I would participate in the building of that thing with my preconceived notions of who this person was. Oh, he's a mathematician, and he's an atheist, and I just saw him recoil when I said I'm a pastor, so we have nothing in common. And to say, no, we have everything in common because every single person that I am with is made in the image of God. I am in the presence of someone astonishing when I am with somebody. Now, that image may be tarnished almost beyond recognition, but it is there. We are all born in the image of God. We grow into the likeness of God. So that was one conversation that, for me, epitomizes... the way uh, I I believe that God is inviting us to be with people. The second conversation was with my brother who who died uh, 14 months ago. Of the uh, many things that I've done in my life, one of the things that I am just so genuinely grateful for and thankful to God for is that I I made the choice to journey with him for... um, Uh, 14 months uh, when he was diagnosed with uh, uh, a stage 4 cancer to his death. My brother is uh, what was uh, bipolar. He was schizophrenic and um, struggled with addictions all of his life. And whenever you were around him, um, he always talked about himself. He had no friends. He had never worked a job in his life. He was... Uh, uh, my parents were his legal guardian. And, <clears throat> and uh, he was a difficult person to be, be with. And I felt that whenever I was around him. It was just like, I, uh, to confess, I did not like my brother. And nobody really liked him. And because of that, he became more and more isolated. Thank you. Uh, now, it's okay for a man to uh, uh, accept tissue, but he, a man, he doesn't use them, okay? <laughs> right? It's kind of like that announcement thing up there, right? Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, so my brother, you know, I, I just thought, I, uh, Jesus, how are you inviting me to be with my brother? What does it look like to love him where he is, as he is. And so I I simply made the choice to be with him night after night after night. Whenever I was in town, my wife said, go be with him. And and perhaps I shared this story with you last year, but so so this part I'll keep very brief. So I was, I just would go and I would hang with him. And my brother, really, he lived with my parents and uh, had extreme uh, bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. So, I mean, he was pretty, uh, you know, doped up at times. And all he would do was mostly sit and watch TV. And 
all day long and into the evening, sleep irregular hours, and then he would sometimes go down to the corner grocery store, take a walk and get a snack and walk back. That was my brother's life. And when he was diagnosed, you get a window into how he thought about himself when, when I was with him in the doctor's office, you know, and the doctor was talking about this form of cancer he had and said, so, so Bart, tell me, what, what do you do? Are you a cashier? Are you a teacher? You? And, and Bart said, oh, I, uh, nothing. And the doctor persisted and said, well, I mean, are you like an architect or do you, you know? And threw out a few more occupations and my brother said, I, 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 nothing. He says, I don't, I don't do anything. And the doctor didn't look startled, but he just kind of stared at him and, and then Bart put his head down. He says, I don't do anything. He says, uh, I, I am nothing. Those were his words, I'm nothing. And I think those, that was the first time I heard my brother kind of confess his internal state. He's a very guarded, private person. So anyway, would be going over to his house, and what does my brother do? He watches TV. So it's like, well, what am I going to watch with him? And everything I suggest, he's watched. Because that's what happens when you watch TV 10, 12 hours a day, right? So, you know, I know something of the genre he likes, and I said, hey, have, have you ever watched Breaking Bad? And uh, he hadn't. And I thought, well, this could be really good. Because Walter White has stage four cancer, and my brother has stage four cancer. Walter White thought that he never did anything with his life, and my brother never did anything, he felt like, with his life. And so we began watching that, and I didn't say anything to him. And it wasn't just, a, I actually prayed, Lord, what could I watch with my brother? And it was like, without thinking about those things, Breaking Bad just floated to the top of my mind. And when I suggested, he says, yeah, let's try it. And he loved it. He loved it. But what I didn't do, and I would, we, we had this ritual. I would come, I would sit with him, we'd talk about how he was feeling, chit-chat, and then say, you want to watch the movie now? And then we would watch it, and then we would chit-chat a little bit more. And whenever anybody, you know, really had a conversation with my brother in our family, it was always to change him. And I just thought, I'm done with that. I am done with trying to change my brother to have a, a deeper conversation with him because that had been a great thirst in my life. I'm done with it. Lord, if anything's going to happen, you're going to have to do it. And for one year, we watched TV and had small talk. And the disease progressed. And I would pray for him before I would go too. May I pray for you? And he would, he would say, yeah. And I would just put my hand on his shoulder and pray for him. So, you know, we're coming to the point now where he's in hospice care. And it was two weeks approximately before he died. It's an evening. I'm sitting with him in the dark. And he, he's, he's moaning at this point, And he's just like, ugh. And then he says... This is so hard. And the old me would have tried to put some gloss on it rather than to simply acknowledge that, be with him in his pain and say, yes, it is. And I'm so sorry. And then there was silence again. 
And I notice that when my parents go in, they're trying to fill the space with conversation. Keep, keep the conversation going. Keep things upbeat. And, you know, I just thought, I don't want to do that. I'm just going to be quiet with my brother. And then after uh, I said that, he goes, oh, I, j- I just need to pray more. This is surprising because any mention of God in his life, and boy, you're talking about like steel walls, 10 feet thick went up. And rather than say something stupid, like I would have said 15, 20 years ago, like, yeah, don't we all? I simply said, I hear your brother. I said, do you? Do you pray, Bart? And he goes, All the time. All the time. It's like, what? I didn't say that. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) And, you know, rather than do something stupid like I would have done 15, 20 years ago and say, well, that's great. I wanted to know what he prayed to go deeper. And so I said, and when you pray, Bart, what do you pray? And then he goes, I pray that God will forgive me of all my sins. Who would have known? And rather than say something stupid, like I would have 10 or 15 years ago, I said, and when you pray that, what does, what does he say back to you? Because that's important, right? And he says, he does. He has. And I simply said, I'm so happy to hear that. And that was it. That was our conversation. And I realized that with my brother and with many people like him, you, you can't go in with boxing gloves. You know, you, you have to go in gently. You have to go in humbly. You have to accept people as they are. You can't be listening to them and, ref- and formulating your questions in advance. You have to really just enter into their stories and, you know, I, the thing that has allowed me to do that is, uh, you know, just getting kicked in the hindsight like, a, you know, so much over the last few years and realizing how, how, uh, how little I know, how little I see, how uncurious I am, how uncompassionate I am. And, you know, so, so it's, been a, it's been a journey that has uh, uh, had the effect of removing veils, allowing myself to connect with God, allowing uh, others to connect with God, but allowing myself to connect with other people and them to connect with me. And this is the, the, the work of Jesus who is about bridge building and uh, bringing all things under the, uh, the, the uh, loving authority of the Father. 
I love Malcolm Muggeridge's, uh, this cantankerous, cantankerous British journalist who uh, was a curmudgeon, a true curmudgeon, and he, he became a Christian later in life. And he said that the purpose of life is to seek God and in seeking God to find him and in finding him to know him and in knowing him to love him and in loving him to be brought into harmony with people and the entire created order. This is the work of Jesus. So I'll just finish by saying presence, honor people with your time and attention. Turn off your phone, put down your book, turn off the TV, and when somebody talks to you, turn to them, look them in the eye, and say, I am here. Not 80% of me is here, but I am here. Keep in mind that you are in the presence of someone astonishing, someone who is divine, in a sense, because God has created that person in his own image. Love that person as he or she is. Just as you are called to know that God loves you as you are, not the idealized version of yourself that you carry or want to be, but as you are. Know that God loves that person as he or she is. Understand that God is up to something in that person's life already. Something's going on. That person may be oblivious to it, but your way of being with them is to help them eventually discover how God is touching their life. So God got there before you arrived on the scene. That's a good thing. Get rid of preconceived notions, labels. Recognize that you know very, very little about that person. I loved my dad more when I knew that he had been beaten severely as a child with things that you shouldn't be beaten with. And then I realized there's, there's a reason he is the way he is. And I had a lot more compassion for him. Be open to the Spirit's leading. Look for a ripe moment and only walk in when you are invited to walk in. Just wait. Enjoy the quiet. Enjoy the silence with others. Don't feel like you have to fill up that space with words. And stick almost entirely to questions. Not leading questions, but just questions that are born out of a desire to know and love better. That's it. If you do those things, the transformative effect in your life and in the lives of people around you is more than you can imagine. And I bless you to be people who listen as Jesus listened, to be open to the Spirit, the Spirit's uh, work in your own life and in the lives of others as you are in conversation with one another. And that's what I wanted to share with you. So uh, if we could uh, stand, I would love to pray for you and then are we having communion right after this?
<clears throat> okay, I'm violating a, a something here, and I need, don't take away my man card, but. So in just a moment, please, you know, you're invited to come forward for uh, communion, and Matt and I are going to serve that to you. And uh, uh, if you would just even linger for like two or three seconds uh, just to be able to lay hands on you and bless you to be a person who listens like Jesus, that would be a great, a great honor. So, um, so, Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Uh, You are in the work of bringing heaven to earth. You are in the, the, Lord, you are about bringing your your kingdom um, into fruition. And Lord, you have have invited us into this work to to be co-creating with you. We're deeply honored that you have uh, invited us into this. And so we say thank you, thank you, thank you. And would you teach us all, Lord, by your grace and by the power of your spirit, Lord, to become humble, to become meek like Jesus, to be um, people, Lord, who are unafraid to, to be in there with people so unlike us and to discover what your work is there. In all things, Lord, have your way. Through Christ, amen. blessing of the Lord. May the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit fill you with all compassion, with all tenderness, with all wisdom, and may you, as you go out, uh, be sensitized to those around you, their needs, and that you would find your place as somebody who accompanies them as Christ. Amen.